which is Deuteronomy chapter 1. These are the words Moses spoke to all Israel in the wilderness east of the Jordan, that is, in the Arabah, opposite Suf, between Paran and Tophel, Laban, Hazaroth and Dizahab. It takes 11 days to go from Hereb to Kadesh Barnea by the Mount Seir Road. In the 40th year, on the first day of the 11th month, Moses proclaimed to the Israelites all that the Lord had commanded him concerning them. This was after he had defeated Sihon, king of the Amorites, who reigned in Heshbon, and at Edrei had defeated Og, king of Bashan, who reigned in Ashtaroth. East of the Jordan, in the territory of Moab, Moses began to expound this law, saying, The Lord our God said to us at Horeb, You have stayed long enough at this mountain. Break camp and advance into the hill country of the Amorites. Go to all the neighbouring peoples of the Arabah, in the mountains, in the western foothills, in the Negev and along the coast, to the land of the Canaanites and to Lebanon, as far as the great river, the Euphrates. See, I have given you this land. Go in and take possession of the land the Lord swore he would give to your fathers, to Abraham, Isaac and Jacob, and to their descendants after them. At that time I said to you, you are too heavy a burden for me to carry you alone. The Lord your God has increased your numbers so that today you are as numerous as the stars in the sky. May the Lord, the God of your ancestors, increase you a thousand times and bless you as he has promised. But how can I bear your problems and your burdens and your disputes all by myself? Choose some wise, understanding and respected men from each of your tribes and I will set them over you. You answered me, what you propose to do is good. So I took the leading men of your tribes, wise and respected men, and appointed them to have authority over you, as commanders of thousands, of hundreds, of fifties, and of tens, and as tribal officials. And I charged your judges at that time, hear the disputes between your people and judge fairly. Whether the case is between two Israelites or between an Israelite and a foreigner residing among you, do not show partiality in judging, hear both small and great alike. Do not be afraid of anyone, for judgment belongs to God. Bring me any case too hard for you and I will hear it. And at that time, I told you everything you were to do. Then, as the Lord our God commanded us, we set out for Horeb and went toward the hill country of the Amorites through all that vast and dreadful wilderness that you have seen. And so we reached Kadesh Barnea. Then I said to you, you have reached the hill country of the Amorites, which the Lord our God is giving us. See, the Lord your God has given you the land. Go up and take possession of it as the Lord, the God of your ancestors, told you. Do not be afraid. Do not be discouraged. Then all of you came to me and said, let us send men ahead to spy out the land for us and bring back a report about the route we are to take and the towns we will come to. The idea seemed good to me, so I selected 12 of you, one man from each tribe. They left and went up into the hill country and came to the valley of Eshkol and explored it. Taking with them some of the fruit of the land, they brought it down to us and reported, It is a good land that the Lord our God is giving us. But you were unwilling to go up. You rebelled against the command of the Lord your God. You grumbled in your tents and said, The Lord hates us, so he brought us out of Egypt to deliver us into the hands of the Amorites to destroy us. Where can we go? Our brothers have made our hearts melt in fear. They say the people are stronger and taller than we are. The cities are large with walls up to the sky. We even saw the Anakites there. 
Then I said to you, do not be afraid. Do not be terrified. Do not be afraid of them. The Lord your God who is going before you will fight for you as he did for you in Egypt before your very eyes and in the wilderness. There you saw how the Lord your God carried you as a father carries his son all the way you went until you reached this place. In spite of this, you did not trust in the Lord your God who went ahead of you on your journey in fire by night and in a cloud by day to search out places for you to camp and to show you the way you should go. When the Lord heard what you said, he was angry and solemnly swore, no one from this evil generation shall see the good land I swore to give your ancestors except Caleb, son of Jephunneh. He will see it and I will give him and his descendants the land he set his feet on because he followed the Lord wholeheartedly. Because of you, the Lord became angry with me also and said, you shall not enter it either, but your assistant Joshua, son of Nun, will enter it. Encourage him, because he will lead Israel to inherit it. And the little ones that you said will be taken captive, your children who do not yet know good from evil, they will enter the land. I will give it to them and they will take possession of it. But as for you, turn around and set out towards the desert along the route to the Red Sea. Then you replied, we have sinned against the Lord. We will go up and fight as the Lord our God commanded us. So every one of you put on his weapons, thinking it easy to go up into the hill country. But the Lord said to me, tell them, do not go up and fight, because I will not be with you. You will be defeated by your enemies. So I told you, but you would not listen. You rebelled against the Lord's command, and in your arrogance, you marched up into the hill country. The Amorites who lived in those hills came out against you. They chased you like a swarm of bees and beat you down from Seir all the way to Hormah. You came back and wept before the Lord. But he paid no attention to your weeping and turned a deaf ear to you. And so you stayed in Kadesh many days, all the time you spent there. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thanks, Sandy. Um, Well, it's that time of year when I've been talking about carols in the news this morning, uh, which means, believe it or not, the end of the year is approaching fast. Uh, I was just chatting to Josh, he's got exams uh, coming up this week, Year 12 exams, sorry to remind you Josh, Uh, and others with Year 12 or VCE students uh, in the house, I'm sure you're well aware. Year 12s uh, sit on the precipice, don't they? School life is over, adult life is beckoning. That means that uh, graduations and valedictory celebrations are around the corner and they're going to hear a graduation speech. What can the headmaster or the principal say to to sum up the schooling journey to send out the young women and men into the world with the best possible start? Will it be a version of the classic work hard and you'll be successful kind of speech? Uh, Or perhaps the more contemporary cast off the expectations of others, go your own way and enjoy yourself. What sort of advice will they get? Uh, To be honest, I can't remember what was said at my graduation. Uh, Perhaps for many of us, uh, the words just sort of flow over you, uh, forgotten and left behind at school like trigonometry and long division. Uh, Today, though, we're starting our series in the book of Deuteronomy. And these are words that I sincerely hope will not be forgotten and left behind. You see, the class of 1406 BC, thereabouts, they're on the cusp of a new life as well. 
And Moses, who in a sense has been their headmaster, trying to keep them in line and teach them a few things along the way, well, he's approaching the end. And when Deuteronomy opens, he is standing with all Israel on the edge of the land that God has promised them. After 40 years wandering in the desert, here they are. How will Moses sum up all that time? What have they learned? What words will he use to encourage this young nation as they prepare to enter their new life in the land of promise? Thankfully, his words were not forgotten. And we've got Deuteronomy, which is is really the series of talks that Moses gave on the edge of the promised land to encourage and to urge the Israelites to trust the Lord wholeheartedly, to obey Him with all their heart, not only as they're entering, but even more so as they settle down to live their new life. Uh, Now, just very quickly about the title of this book. Uh, Deuteronomy, uh, the name comes from the Latin and Greek, Uh, it means second law, and in a sense, uh, Deuteronomy, well, it is, it's where Moses restates the law that was originally given by God on Mount Sinai, remember the Ten Commandments uh, and all of those, 40 years earlier, it was first recorded in Exodus, now Moses restates that law 40 years later for a new generation. He's urging them and persuading them that it's good and right to follow and obey God. That's the name we have for the book, uh, Deuteronomy. For the Hebrews, though, uh, the Hebrew name is, was actually different. Uh, Hebrew is the language of the ancient Israelites, the, um, the original language that it was written in. And in Hebrew, the title of a book is usually its first word or two. So in Hebrew, the name of this book is actually just words, right? Which seems a very descriptive name for a book, right? Words. Because uh, you'll see in the very first verse, these are the words of Moses. Uh, This points us to the fact that God chooses, at this very special moment in Israel's history, He chooses to reveal His will to them in words. He uses words to set up the shape of His relationship with them. In theological terms, uh, they say He makes a covenant with them, and the covenant is mediated with words. So this relationship is not a typical teen romance, Right, which grows and blossoms on little more than a fluttering of eyelids, maybe a grunt or two and some fleeting glances. Sadly, we all know uh, where most uh, typical teen romances end. Sometimes, though, we try to do the same with God, don't we? We're, we're interested but hesitant. We're not totally sure where we stand. Does He really like me? Maybe we should just keep it vague. I'm not sure about committing. Maybe there's a bit of flirting, but we avoid that honest and open conversation. Well, no, God doesn't let that happen. He says to Israel, let me spell it out to you really clearly. Let me be clear where I stand and where you stand. God uses words to explain the shape of a relationship with Him. And that's, that's awesome. Because a relationship with God is, is not the same as a romance, is it? It's not actually a coming together of two equals. We're profoundly unequal with God. How could we ever approach Him if He didn't first invite us? God is is not like us, so our human relationships are not always a great guide 
on how to relate with God. Thankfully, God does take the initiative. He speaks to Moses, and in verse 3, we're told, Moses proclaimed to the Israelites all that the Lord had commanded him concerning them. Moses, ever the faithful messenger, brings God's words of life to his people to explain to them how they can know and relate to God. But you might have noticed, if you've got your Bible open in front of you, I actually skipped over a detail in verse 2 and 3 that that should actually raise some questions for us. Verse 2, our author says, almost as a bit of an aside, it takes 11 days to go from Horeb to Kadesh Barnea by the Mount Seir Road. Uh, Now, Horeb there, you might not pick it up straight away, but Horeb is actually just another name for Mount Sinai. Uh, For some reason, I don't uh, know, the author of Deuteronomy seems to always call uh, Sinai by this name, Horeb, but it's the same place, same, same event. Uh, we've got a map that will show you. Uh, so Horeb is this one, Mount Sinai, right down here. Right? So that's where um, the Lord appears to Moses on the mountain, the tablets of stone with the Ten Commandments and all the law. And we're told it's 11 days journey to get from there up to Kadesh Barnea, which you'll see is uh, just below the bottom of the red area. 11 days, and Kadesh Barnea is, is right on the southern edge of that promised land. So the author is saying, you, you remember how God gave us the law at Horeb, at Mount Sinai, that was back in Exodus, and maybe you've been reading through Leviticus and Numbers, and you're asking, are we there yet? Well, how far is it? It takes 11 days. But then the very next verse, in verse 3, tells us, in the 40th year... Hang on a sec. Somehow this 11-day journey has turned into 40 years of wandering. They're still not there yet. It's the worst road trip ever. (laughs) It turns out that Israel got kept back a couple of years at school. Right? They've been wandering in the wilderness, but now, finally, it's time. They're once again on the edge of the promised land. Uh, If we go back to the map, they're actually now in the hill country of Moab, which is, uh, you'll see Moab just near the river over on the right, still at the southern edge, but now on the eastern side. They're in the hill country of Moab. Uh, They've already won a couple of victories. They've got a bit of a foothold, and they're looking across the Jordan at the land that God had always promised them. In verse 6 to 8, Moses reminds them of this. The Lord our God said to us at Horeb, You've stayed long enough at this mountain. Break camp and advance into the hill country of the Amorites. Go to all the neighboring peoples in the Arabah, in the mountains, in the western foothills, in the Negev and along the coast, to the land of the Canaanites. So that all those names are just different ways of breaking up the, the land of the Canaanites. To Lebanon, which is further north, as far as the great river, the Euphrates. See, I have given you this land. Go in and take possession of the land the Lord swore he would give to your fathers to Abraham, Isaac and Jacob, and to their descendants after them. Moses points them to the promise that God made many hundreds of years ago. Uh, You might remember it, back in Genesis 15, it says, On that day the Lord made a covenant with Abram and said, To your descendants I give this land from the wadi of Egypt to the great river the Euphrates, that's from the south right up to the north, the land of the Kenites, Kenizzites, Cadmonites, Let me check, I've got them all. The Hittites, the Perizzites, the Rephaites, the Amorites, Canaanites, Girgashites and Jebusites. Try saying it three times fast. God is giving them this land, right? 
why is he doing this? Why is God giving them this land that clearly already has inhabitants in it? And, and with the, the benefit of hindsight from today, isn't this part of the reason for the ongoing conflict in the Middle East? It sounds awfully like colonisation, doesn't it? Is God condoning a superpower moving in and taking the land of Indigenous people here? Is that what's going on? On the surface, there are some similarities. But as soon as we look a bit more closely, the reality is actually quite different. Firstly, we need to recognise that when God makes this promise, Abram's family is no superpower. He doesn't actually have a, a single child at this point. He's, he's a nomadic wanderer. As are Israel, when Moses speaks to them, uh, to, to Israel, they're, they're wandering. They're, they're not technologically more advanced than anyone. So it's not a superpower moving in here. Secondly, God is asserting his right here as the creator of the land, the, the creator of the peoples in it as well. He's asserting his right to give it to whoever he chooses. He is, in, in our parlance, the original owner and custodian of the land. He doesn't say to the Israelites, go and fight the Canaanites and if you're strong enough, if you're more powerful, then you get it. Right? He says, I am giving it to you. It's a gift for Israel to receive. It's not simply a case of might makes right. And then finally, look at God's intention in giving them this land. Uh, God spells this out a bit earlier to Abram in Genesis 12. He says to Abram, I will make you into a great nation and I will bless you. I will make your name great and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and whoever curses you I will curse and all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. God wants to bless all people. He, he wants to, to woo us back because we've all turned away from him. The, the Kenesites and the Jebusites as much as you and me. He chooses to start with a promise to one family to bless them and their descendants and through them to bless all people on earth and part of that blessing is to give them a land to live in god is is motivated not by empire not by uh, violence and judgment but by this promise to bless And now finally, God is making good on that promise. He has saved Abraham's descendants, the Hebrews, out of slavery in Egypt. He rescued them from oppression and tyranny. He brought them out with great power. They wandered in the wilderness. Now he's about to lead them into the land that he promised long ago. So what have they learned along the way? What is Moses going to call to mind to remind them of as they prepare to enter the promised land? Uh, well, as you might have guessed, Israel have not been great students. Firstly, in verses 9 to 18, Moses reminds them that they grumbled so much, they had so many disputes, that they were a great burden to him. 
And so he appointed leaders and officials in their tribes to, to govern and judge between them in their disputes. The language here is interesting. Uh, when Moses talks of thousands and hundreds and fifties and tens, uh, this is actually military language that's being used here. It's like he's saying, I took wise and respected men, I appointed them to have authority over you as commanders of your regiments and battalions and companies and platoons. Right? This, is, this is military language. He's reminding them that they are organised for battle. Because the last time they were in this position, on the edge of the Promised Land at Kadesh Barnea, that's exactly what they were afraid of. Here's what happened 40 years earlier. They got to Kadesh Barnea, and instead of going straight in, they first said, well, hang on, let's, let's send some spies ahead, do a bit of reconnaissance. That seems like a reasonable idea. The spies go, they have a look around, and they come back with this report. Uh, in verse 25, it is a good land that the Lord our God is giving us. Uh, I would have loved to have heard the uh, intonation on that statement. It is a good land that the Lord our God... Who would have thought? What a surprise. And yet there's an important lesson here, isn't there? Moses reminds them that God is generous. He has good plans for them, gracious, generous plans. He is giving them a rich and abundant land, flowing with milk and honey, famously. God is generous. He gives good gifts. When he says he will bless them, he means it. And we shouldn't lose sight of this. But then what happens? Well, the spies have come back and now we see the true reason why people wanted to send the spies. We see where their hearts are at in verse 27. You grumbled in your tents and said, The Lord hates us. So he brought us out of Egypt to deliver us into the hands of the Amorites to destroy us. Where can we go? Our brothers have made our hearts melt in fear. They're afraid. They're, they're scared. And they won't trust God. They rebel against Him. Even when God assures them that He will go with them, He will fight for them, He will use His power for them, just as He did when He brought them out of Egypt not that long ago. Remember, He sent the plagues. He stopped the most powerful king on earth. The Pharaoh destroyed the army. Even with that assurance, they will not go, they will not trust God. What does God do in response? He doesn't spit the dummy and give up on the whole plan. He is steadfast and constant. And he is also angry, the text tells us. Our, our rebellion against God, our refusal to trust him, to trust that he is being good towards us, it angers him. And he doesn't hide it, he expresses his anger and he gives them what they choose, actually. In fact, it's better than what they choose. They want to go back to slavery in Egypt at different points. God says, no, 40 years in the wilderness, and this generation that don't trust him, even though they've seen his power, they're not going to enter God's rest, into God's promised land. But God will keep his covenant. He will give this land to Israel, but to the children of that generation that he led out of Egypt. And it's to those children, the, the little ones in verse 39, that they were scared for. The ones they thought would be taken captive. 
and that God wouldn't look after them. These are the ones who Moses is now speaking to in Deuteronomy on the edge of the promised land. But going back 40 years again, what did their parents do when they realised that they had angered and disobeyed God? That he'd consigned them to 40 years in the wilderness? Well, they say, oh, oops, <laughs> we should have gone up. We should have entered the land. Quick, let's go. They realise too late what they've missed out on. But the moment has passed them by. When God was saying, go in, they say, no, let's stay out. When God says, stay out, they say, no, let's go in. It just goes to show they haven't actually learnt the most important lesson here, have they? The most important thing is not, at the end of the day, where they live, though that is very important. Even more than that, God wants his people to trust him, to listen to him, to serve and obey him with all their heart. And they still will not. First they spurn God's generous gift and are suspicious of it. Now they take it for granted and and they think this is no big deal. We'll just rush in and get it. Either way, they're failing to listen and to trust God. And chapter 1 ends on this sad note. God's people defeated, weeping, calling out to him. But God will not respond. He will not change his mind. That's chapter 1, and and the simple lesson, really, from that, uh, from Deuteronomy for us, seems to be that, well, you trust God and obey Him, you follow His commands, then you'll enjoy His blessing, right? Obey God, receive His blessings, and if you disobey Him, if you ignore Him, then you'll suffer the punishment. That'd be the simple lesson, right? Do the right thing, you'll reap the rewards, Work hard, you'll be successful. But if you follow this lesson, it doesn't end well. Uh, On the one hand, you might despair. Because actually you can't do it. You know you don't follow God wholeheartedly. You don't always obey Him and trust Him. Perhaps you know that you live out of fear more than trusting God's faithfulness. And so you have to give up any hope of God's blessing. And you might even be reluctant and suspicious when God does give you a generous gift because you don't think you've earned it. On the other hand, if you do think you're trusting God and obeying Him, then presumably you're entitled to all the good things in your life. You've earned them. And if only others tried a bit harder and were more obedient they too could have God's blessings. Very soon your faith in God becomes faith in your own goodness. God's generous gifts to you become things you deserve, not gifts at all. God is not so much your saviour, who you trust come what may, but he's more like your manager, who you work hard to please, to make sure you get the pay and the promotions that you deserve. And sadly, this uh, view of Christianity, that you obey God and then you get blessings, uh, as I hope you can tell, this is a wrong view, though a popular one. 
adherence to Christianity has been declining in Australia for at least 60 years. I hope it's because people are realising that God is not a manager. He's not a vending machine you can put in good behaviour and get out rewards. I hope people are rejecting a simplistic and moralistic view of the Lord God because the story of Israel grumbling against God, not listening to Him or trusting Him, that's our story too. He says, go left, we say, no, the right looks good. He says, go right, we go left. We're fickle towards God, but He is faithful and constant. He stands by His promises to bless, even when we do our best to frustrate Him. And so many years later, He comes to do for us what we can never do for ourselves. He fulfills his promise to Abraham, not through a modern-day nation, but through his son Jesus, in whom every promise of God is yes. Jesus is born, he lives and dies in full, wholehearted obedience to God, trusting his heavenly Father. He's the one and only person to fully trust God, the one who truly deserved God's blessings. And what did he do with that? Instead of enjoying God's blessings all for himself, he lays it down for us. He goes to the cross. He dies the death for our rebellion and grumbling against God. He dies in our place. And now he suffers, uh, now sorry, he offers us entry with him into all God's blessing, the entry that he alone deserves. He offers us a place with Him, not, not in the land of Palestine today, but a place with God in a renewed and restored creation. With, with no conflict or contamination or rebellion, no terror or fear, but peace and harmony. You are invited into God's very presence to truly experience the blessing of knowing God both now and forever. The message of Christianity is not blessings if you obey. It is an offer of God's generous blessings. The story of God's unrelenting generosity to us who disobey. And we receive these blessings not by earning them, but by trusting Him. Trusting Him with all your heart. So friends, if you're a follower of Jesus today, if you've taken up God's offer to enter His kingdom, to enjoy relationship with Him on His terms, then I want to give you a moment now to reflect. Think about your trust in God. Is it wholehearted? Like Caleb was described in our passage. Are you willing to trust God when you can see His blessings? When they're right in front of you? And what about when you're wandering in the wilderness? When God's promises seem far off? Do you still trust His generosity to you then? Do you have sufficient hope and optimism in what God can do? 
though it might seem like giants stand before you. I preach this as much for myself as, as anyone. Sometimes I worry that I am more governed by fear. I, I'm hesitant to take a bold step of faith in God. How will I look if he doesn't deliver? I'm driven by self-preservation and fear in those moments, not by trust in God's generosity. How much more boldly would I pray? How much more would I encourage others to trust Jesus for themselves? How much more would I resist peer pressure to take an unpopular stand in faithfulness to God? If we say we trust God, let's ask Him to help us to trust Him wholeheartedly. You could pray that for me and for us in our open prayer time later. If on the other hand, for some of us, we haven't committed to trusting Jesus wholeheartedly, uh, if that's you, a good, great question to think about would be, what is holding you back? Are you not sure about God's goodness and power? Are you not sure how to approach him? Are you not sure if his offer of forgiveness and life in Jesus is really for you? It's good things to think about. But also, let me say, God is worth trusting. So worth trusting. He is dependable and steadfast and generous. What he promises, he does. So will you trust him and give your life wholeheartedly to following him? Give up rebelling against him. Give up directing your own life. Trust his, his love and his goodness for you. Don't try to earn it by being good. Trust that Jesus has done enough, which he has, far, far more than you could ever do. Jesus has given his life for you. Will you receive that gift? Friends, Jesus gave his life so that even though we are far from model pupils, Though Israel's story is our story, we can embark on this life and the next. Not working hard for success, not living for ourselves either. But enjoying the steadfast and faithful love of God our Creator.